Anita Heiss. As well as an award-winning author, Anita is a staunch and vocal ambassador for the Indigenous Literacy Foundation. She's long advocated for the benefits of literacy as a tool to strengthen and even revitalise culture through the art of storytelling in First Nations communities. This is no more evident than in her latest offering, Bila Yaradungalangdere. Anita, welcome back to Speaking Out. Thank you so much for having me, or I should say my language, Mandangu. Thank you. Now, I want to get into this amazing book you've written, but I thought just to get us started, I might ask how you became a writer. Wow. Yes. So as we get older, you have to think so far back. <laughs> um, I, look, I, need, I need your listeners to know I never imagined that one day I'd be talking to you about having, you know, writing novels and so forth because I didn't read as a child. I was a pen pal. I liked to write stories through letters and so forth. But I was inspired to write my first book, after I was at university, UNSW, doing my undergraduate degree on the 1967 referendum and having to read all my course outlines were basically non-Indigenous people in Australian history writing about Aboriginal Australia. And so I got one book off the shelf. I think it was 1990 or 91 that was uniquely titled Australian Aborigines and it was written by someone who in Great Britain, it was based on letters that somebody in New South Wales would write to them, today we did this with the natives and today we did that with the natives, you know, that very documentary style gaze and lens and voice. And one day five Aboriginal men took this fella hunting and they left him for a short period of time and only four returned. So he assumed they ate the fifth one and writes this letter back to Britain saying the natives are cannibals because five went away and four came back. So obviously they ate the fifth one. And I was horrified. I thought this is written now as a history book and here's this one moment in time where someone's perceived cannibalism in Aboriginal culture as something which I had never heard of before and didn't hear of again until Pauline Hanson had a voice, and that's another conversation. And I realised at that moment in time that, one, that history is completely subjective in the way it is recorded, and that uh, obviously the colonising nations around the world have recorded history and it's very different to the way in which colonised peoples remember and record history. So I realised that. And I also realised that I had a responsibility as, you know, the first person in my family to go to university and learn the skills for researching and writing to do something about that. So I wrote my first book, Sacred Cows, which was really just a send-up of Australian culture and Skippy and Veggie on it and so forth, not knowing back then that I would write more. My first writing job was actually at Streetwise Comics between 1992 and 94. I wasn't very good at that, Larissa, because in comics there's not very many words. And, I, <laughs> and I, you know, you've known me for a long time. I'm not short of a word. So I wasn't very good at the comic script writing, but through doing that and learning about different ways of telling stories and different ways of getting important information out. So those comics were for young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with low literacy skills to teach them about opportunities through education and training, but also their legal rights and so forth in ways that they might not pick up a brochure or a book or even a phone book, but they'll read a comic. So I guess that's, you know, how I started. Now, I've known you for a very long time and you've always had a very strong sense of who you are. And I wonder if you could share with us who or what shaped your worldview as a Wiradjuri woman? 
I have to say hands down it's you know from childhood till today it's obviously my mum with the support of my father because interestingly people would say strangers even would say how can you be an Aborigine if your father's Austrian and throughout my entire life I always recognised that the only person who never asked me that was my father because, you know, love was unconditional and he loved my mum unconditionally. And they both, though from completely different cultural backgrounds, my father was absorbed and brought into and loved in my mum's family and community. And, you know, they didn't sit me down when I was a child and say, you're Wiradjuri, you're this, you're that. They were there, though, to pick up the pieces when I suffered racism and explained to me, I was five, mum said I was brown because I'd been kissed by the sun. But when I was old enough to understand, it was always about them saying be strong and proud of who you are and always backed me up with whatever I needed to do. And they both had incredibly strong work ethics coming from poor families and very strong family values. And those strong family values are very much Wiradjuri values as well. So I'd have to say that they created the person that I am today. Your new book is stunning. I have to say I've read it twice and I think it's, you know, it's really you at the height of your storytelling powers. Billa Yara Dangalangdere is a fascinating story that's steeped in history. What drew you to the story? Yeah, so the story, interesting. So in 2017, it was the 165th anniversary of the Great Flood of Gundagai, which is known as one of Australia's largest, most devastating natural disasters, most definitely the largest devastating flood at a time when a third of the town drowned over three days, which is quite extraordinary. And the town was about 250 population. And when I learned this story and the story of Yadi and Jackie Jackie, who were two Wiradjuri men who went out on canoes uh, with Long Jimmy and Tommy Davis, but Yari and Jackie Jackie both saved lives during those, those three days of raging torrential rains and floods and so forth. And when I learned this story, I thought to myself, how is it that all Australians do not know this story? This is something the world should know. And literally six months later, I started going to Charles Sturt University in Wagga Wagga and learning my Wiradjuri language with Uncle Stan Grant and all of his protégés. And then I realised that, you know, I needed to write something about the flood because these heroes needed to be in our nation's literary landscape and it, then every lesson I had and every story I learned and every time I went out on country in the floodplains of Wagga Wagga or I stood in the river, the Murrumbidgee Billa, I got ideas and I, I started to imagine what it must have been like for my ancestors living on that land through every season and I also wanted at the same time to tell a story about what it was like for women in particular, both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal women living on the land in Wiradjuri country in the mid-1800s. One of the things that comes through really strongly in your book is that sense of landscape. And when you listen to how you sort of almost sung that up by standing there, it's, it's really easy to understand why it's so strong in the book. What other research did you undertake to pull it together? I went back to Wagga, I guess over two years. I was in Wagga eight or nine times 
I went to Gundagai a number of times as well. I spent time in the Gundagai Library, the museum. I walked the streets of Gundagai and along the river, which is dry in many parts. There's a lot of monuments to our heroes now. And I spent time in the museum there and reading a whole lot of material that had been documented around the flood in particular in newspaper articles and so forth. I had Miriam Crane, who manages the Kutamundra Gundagai tourism office there, read drafts. She is the font of knowledge in terms of history there. And I had Ani Sony Piper, who's like our matriarch and Brungle, read the material around Brungle and so forth as well. I spent time in Wagga Library, who were just extraordinary in terms of offering assistance for, you know, material that's already been documented. I, through my language lessons, we spent a lot of the class, you know, lessons happen in the classroom, but they happen, you know, by the river, they happen down in the floodplains. We go and look at sites, we look, look at scar trees. So I heard stories of significant places. Not everything ends up in the novel because not everything's for the public domain, as, as you would know. But to be honest with you, I could not have written that book if I was not down there, if I was not sitting in yarning circles or in sitting just with my, you know, galang with all the other Wiradjuri women who forced me to, you know, answer questions in language, use the dictionary in the app when I have to. In my class, I'm probably at the lowest rung of understanding, the slowest learner. But, I, you know, I spoke to a gentleman, Ian Horsley, who his great-great-grandfather was saved by Yari in the flood. So, I, you know, I actually spoke to direct descendants of people there and I had drafts read by my peers as well, Rebecca Connolly and Letitia Harris and Arnie Elaine Lomas. And so I feel very fortunate because I had access to a whole lot of knowledge and wisdom and land that I could stand on. And when you fly into Wiradjuri country, I always took photos. So I had an idea of what it looked like from the sky. I had, you know, driving across the landscape, I could see right rolling hills. I could see that the land was very similar in Wagga to Gundagai so that when Wagadine arrives, she can know that she's still on Wiradjuri country. Wagadine to me feels like a new heroine of literature and I was wondering how you created her. That's really interesting, Larissa, because, you know, well, you would know this as a writer. You don't sit down saying, like, I'm going to create this character and she's going to be a heroine. Who Wagadine is to me is that she is a composite of all the women that I know not just Wiradjuri women, but Aboriginal women who have faced adversity and remained dignified. You know, she's a composite of all the resilient, the intelligent, hardworking, spiritual and strong, particularly Wiradjuri women that I not only know today but have known in the past. And I think she embodies all the values that I was raised to have and all the values, the Wiradjuri values that we talk about when I'm down there with, you know, my class and with my me gun and my family and so forth. The thing too that I think is remarkable, we hear how much research has gone into this, you know, how much you really delved into these moments of history. And yet I think it's a remarkable credit that when you're reading the book, the history's there, but you don't get bogged down in it. Sometimes when you're reading a book that's based in history, the author can't help but give you so many details. Your book is so character-driven, especially if you count the landscape as a character, which I do. I feel like it's really alive. How do you ensure that balance? How do you make sure that the book remains character-led and you don't get distracted by all of these wonderful bits of history that you're learning? 
Well, thank you for that observation. It's so funny because you see things that I hadn't thought about before. So we're thinking about that now. I think, well, there's probably more characters in this novel than there's been in any of my novels previously. There's a number of different points of view. So we can see also, which hasn't happened before, so we can see life on the landscape. And I think you're correct, the landscape is a character as well because it has a life of its own and a purpose and a role of its own and the river as well. I think what I try to do with all my novels is to have characters that appear so authentic, whether they're humanitarians or villains, whether they were Adri or whether they're, you know, white fellas, I want to have characters that are so authentic that readers will connect with them to either their values or to some of their behaviours, to their opinions, to some of their dialogue. And so I try to give characters distinct personalities. And I think, you know, for this novel, you can't always have, and I learnt this through writing Paris Dreaming because I had everybody up in arms about the French banning the burqa and my editor at the time said, you can't have everybody thinking the same way, Anita, because, you know, obviously I wanted the world to think like me. And she said, because the world's not like them. She's absolutely right. So then when you can have the character like James Bradley or David Bradley or someone who actually behaves in an appalling way, that way you can have the characters say and do all the things that Anita Heiss wouldn't say or do or Larissa Brent wouldn't say or do or we hope, you know, the men in our lives wouldn't say or do. But it's important to actually cover, cover off all those different traits that we see and all those different voices that we see in society because if we're talking about truth-telling, which this novel is aiming to do, then the truth is people did behave appallingly as well on, you know, Rodri country, well, everywhere around the country during that time. So basically I'm trying to create characters that people can see as absolutely authentic. What are you hoping that your readers will take away from this book? Because there are a lot of themes in there. I think whether I'm writing historical fiction for young people, like The Diary of Mary Talents or Our Race for Reconciliation, or writing for older people, I do it because I believe that when we understand our past, we better understand our present. And I think Australia is still coming to terms with the realities of Aboriginal experiences throughout this country, throughout history, and how that plays out for us today. The way that we grieve for being off country, the issues around having pride and identity when you may not know where your family is from because you were forced off traditional lands or you were removed and disconnected through acts of policies of protection and acts of policy of assimilation, or you may be the product of an act of violence through it in history at the hands of white settlers. And I think that's important for people to understand that, you know, Aboriginal people have diverse histories, some of them incredibly painful. I hope that readers take away a greater respect for the role our people have played in working the land, a greater understanding of what country means to us. And although we've been forced to become resilient over decades of facing adversity, that we are still incredibly proud. I hope that the story might contribute to the conversation around the lack of statues that recognise our warriors and leaders. And when I say our warriors, I mean Yari and Jackie Jackie are Australian heroes. Yes, they were Rajiri, but they saved Australian lives. They should not just be thought of as, you know, heroes of Aboriginal people. They should be heroes of all Australians. 
And we look at the enormous number of statues that celebrate, you know, colonisers and colonial events that don't tell the full story uh, and don't necessarily include First Nations peoples and our role in the shared history of this country. So I'm happy to be honest, Larissa. My goal with any any, you know, not for want of a better word, lesson is that people walk away having learned one thing, you know, just one thing that they didn't know when they started the book. This book does feel like a form of truth-telling. How important is that process to you? Well, I think one of the things I've learned, I learned back at uni was that, you know, truth and history is completely subjective and that my truth is different to the next person's and the colonizer's truth is different to the colonized people's truths, which is why I try to write our version or some version of our history and our or my version of what life is like for many of us today. Um, instead of readers always having to see us through an observer's gaze, there's a quote by an Indian author, said guru i hope i've pronounced that correctly and it's truth is not for comfort it's for liberation for me i think truth telling is a form of liberation it's empowering liberating not only for us but for those who are hearing the truth and wanting the truth so for me it's about liberating readers and giving them capacity to be free to know the full story The book is set in the 1850s and really shows through the storytelling the relationship between the coloniser and the First Nations people. And it's really easy to draw lines between the period that you're looking at in the book and what's happening to the characters and the contemporary issues facing First Nations people today. What are your thoughts on a treaty and the extent to which it might shift this relationship? Okay, well, I'm going to start with the fact that, in case your listeners don't know, that Kevin Gilbert wrote a draft treaty back in 1987. So the contemporary conversation has been happening for decades. Obviously, more recently, we've had the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which called for a First Nations voice to Parliament enshrined in the Constitution and a a Makarata Commission, which would, uh, you know, evolve a process of, you know, making treaties, resolving conflict and so forth. And now I wasn't at the dialogues that led to the Uluru Statement. And I know there are many people who do not agree with the process, but for my part, I trust those with the legal expertise that they know what they're doing and I and I support the statement and a treaty and its requests. And I think my novel highlights that some of the conversations we're having today around rights to land, around rights to freedom, around rights to have a say in our affairs, around sovereignty and so forth, those conversations have been happening for a long time. So I hope that readers then come to understand that we are also exhausted by these conversations. But clearly, if we look at these conversations that have been happening since the novel was set in the 1850s and they're happening now, that we're not giving up. One of the key relationships in the book is between Wagadine and Louisa, and through that storyline, we see all of the complexities of the relationships between Aboriginal women and white women in that colonial context, and a lot of that taking place in the domestic sphere. What reflections do you have on that relationship? Hmm. I think I'm a lot like Wagadine, and, and, and possibly you are too, and other Aboriginal women listening to the show, in that I've had my fair share of Louises in my life, and they are well-meaning non-Aboriginal women who have genuine affection and respect for me as their friend, as Louisa had for Wagadine, you know, respect as a confidant or an employee who claimed to be on our side, as Louisa did with Wagadine and wanting to work for rights, but, you know, rights for Aboriginal people. 
and in terms of the changes that need to be made in society back then and today. But when push comes to shove, their actions do not reflect their intentions or their lip service. And then when you have no further use to them, then they quietly fade away from your world. And sometimes, not always, more often than not, there's this what's in it for me in terms of the friendships they seek. So Louisa genuinely loved and cared for Wagadine. I have no doubt about that. And I I wrote Louisa. I know that she cared and loved Wagadine, but she essentially denied her her freedom, which she had the power to give her because in the end it was still about what Louisa wanted for herself, her own needs and happiness that drove her to turn a blind eye to the fact that she was denying Wagadine her freedom. I just think this book is going to start so many conversations. You've used your voice for a range of important issues, and one that is obviously very close to your heart is literacy. Tell us about your work in that sphere and why this has been such a focus for you. It's interesting because I'm a lifetime ambassador for the Indigenous Literacy Foundation. I've been an ambassador with them, I think, since about 2008, which scares me because that means it's a long time ago when we're all getting older. Well, you must have been 12. I was an embryo. <laughs> and, um, and I guess my role is really about raising awareness and funding for the ILF, which is completely free of government funding, which means it has also complete sovereignty to just do what communities ask for in terms of community-based literacy programs and projects and books in language and so forth and, you know, book supply. And um, I guess what I'm trying to do in my role is to not only encourage a love of reading and writing with our young people, but to help them craft their own stories, inspire them to read more, but also, and it's not rocket science, our people need to see ourselves on the, themselves on the page. So I think moving forward though, I mean, we've been going for a long time now, I would hope in the years to come that the Indigenous Literacy Foundation is not necessary and that perhaps it just becomes a publishing arm because our people have adequate resources and the, the federal government actually puts up the coin for what should be happening anyway because these students in remote communities are Australian citizens and should be resourced like every other Australian student you know, around the country. My next question to you was, what's your advice for somebody out there who's wondering whether they can write a book or not? Okay. Well, if you're listening out there in Radio Land tonight, the first thing I'd say is read widely in whatever the genre is you want to write in, whether it's a kid's book or a memoir or sci-fi, whatever genre it is that you want to write in, you need to read really widely in that genre to see how stories unfold on the page in that genre to help you find your voice for the story you want to tell. I would suggest to you the first thing you do is you write a synopsis. I learned this late in life, but it's changed my capacity to write. So it's write a 1,000 words, pull it back to 300 words, then 25 words for your lift pitch. You need to know what the story is before you even try writing it. So write a synopsis, and trust me, it will make it that much easier. I'm a plotter, so I'm going to suggest that you map your story out like an essay plan for the entire book. And if you already think this is too much work, then you don't have it in you to write a book because this is what it takes. Then to go and do your research, make a list of all the people you might need to interview, any newspapers you might need to access, where you may need to visit, make a list of all the things you're going to need to do to get all the information to write your story. And then I'm going to say, sit down, write, 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 set yourself a goal every day. It might be a thousand words a day. Maybe it's 500 words a day. Give yourself the privilege, the pleasure, the right to find time 
to do the writing, to find yourself a nice place to do it. I like going to a library to do it and write. And then before you send your book off to anybody, get a structural edit done on it. Don't give it to your best friend or your boyfriend or your mother to read unless they're an editor because they all love you and they're going to tell you it's fantastic. But what you need is you need the eyes of somebody who knows how to read for publication if you want your book to get published. Well, a masterclass on writing a book from Anita Heise. Finally okay. tonight, what's next for Anita Heise? <sighs> Taking all of August off to sleep. No, I'm working on Titters, the play, so we're adapting the novel that was came out in 2014 through Simon & Schuster, and that's now being produced by Le Bois Theatre here in Brisbane, and hopefully we'll see that live in March of next year, so I've written a fairly good draft of that. Coming out through Magabala Books um, next year will be Growing Up Wiradjuri, which I've done with about a dozen elders of my elders in, in Wagga Wagga. I started as a community development project out of my language course and very excited about that. I've done a draft novel for middle grades around in working title, Koori Princess for a young girl who thinks she's a Koori princess. And that'll come out through Magabala Books um, next year. And a new edition of Am I Black Enough for You? Just working on the edit for that, that through Penguin Random House will come out in 2022 and toying with the idea of doing a kid's picture book of The Great Flood as a, a spin-off from Billy Adadangalandre. Well, you have just left us all feeling like we're underachievers there, Anita. But it's also yeah. good to know there'll be more books coming out and we'll have you back on speaking out to talk about them. But thank you so much for being with us this evening. Thank you so much, Larissa.